0: Good morning church What a joy to be together today amen the Gospel of Jesus is real and it is good. Mm. We are continuing our series today. We've been doing this series called Gospel Story," where we walk through kind of the main the main kind of chapter headings of the story of Scripture to kind of get to a place, kind of my prayer for each. And every one of us in our church family with this series has been that, that we would understand the gospel narrative in the context of not only this book, but also in the context of our actual lives, right? Like this idea that, that as Christians, you don't graduate past the gospel, but rather you, you learn to see the, like, use the gospel as a lens through which you look at the rest of your life, to see the rest of your life through the gospel story. So, so, so two things we're really aiming at in this time is that we would, we would really lean into the gospel of Jesus, the story of this Bible, of God's good intention and work in this reality as a formative story for us. But then second to that, that, that we would begin to see how this book tells one story, right? That you would be able to find yourself anywhere in this text and, and put yourself into the context of the gospel story that God's telling One of my prayers is that, uh, kind of going forward as a church, that we be the kind of people where we step into the text and we're able to ask these questions that draw us back to how each and every text of the Bible connects to the gospel story. Questions like, where do you see God's creative authority or design in this text? Where do you see the reality and the effects of sin? Where do you see the promises of God? Where do you see the holiness of God on display? How does this text point to Jesus? And as our subjects for today and closing out next week will kind of get us how does this text point forward to God's ultimate eternal design? Because so far we've talked about God as the creator. We talked about the reality of sin, how that distorted, broke, ruined God's perfect design. We talked about the promises of God, that we worship a God who promises he will fix what we have broken. We talked about the holiness of God expressed through his law. And then last week we kind of got to the cherry on top of a Sunday, right? We talked about the person, the work of Jesus, right? The, the thing, this whole thing is pointing to our, our sweet Jesus who perfectly fulfilled the promises of God, who made a way for sinful humanity to live in forgiveness and a relationship with that holy righteous God, the divine person of Jesus, right? And then the accomplished work of Jesus. Both of these pieces equally important in understanding the gospel narrative. Jesus is the promise fulfilled. Jesus makes the way for us from death to life. Sin does not get the final word, right? This, I mean, man, what a gospel, amen? But the cool thing is, and this is what we're gonna talk about today and next week to close this out, the story doesn't end with Jesus on the cross. It doesn't even end with his resurrection. There's still more glory and wonder to this amazing story that is the gospel, You see, Jesus did, in fact, as God, come to earth and live a perfect life and die an unjust sinner's death and raise from the dead and ascended to heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he reigns at the right hand of God the Father. That's the piece we got to talk about, right? Like, yes, he is God. He did come. He did live. He did die. He did raise again. But he ascended to heaven from where he reigns at the right hand of the Father and from which he will return to judge and restore all things. The reign of Jesus is what we're essentially talking about today, what what Jesus himself calls the kingdom of God. This phrase, kingdom of God, is woven throughout the entirety of the scripture, but guys, it is incredibly important for us to understand the New Testament and really to understand the life of a Christian here and today. So our main text today is going to be in Romans chapter 8. If you want to go ahead and turn there, by the way, if you're visiting with us today, we really believe in the importance of access to God's word here in Emmanuel. And so if you're here today and you don't have a physical copy of God's word, we have them spread throughout the room underneath the chairs. You're welcome to grab one. We would invite you, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, to just snag that and take it home. Or even talk to one of our pastors and we will give you one with larger type. Uh, Because... That one's hard to read. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, we're we're in Romans 8 today. It's going to take us a hot minute to get there. So so I need to give you, me a little bit of patience to work our way toward that. Kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is essentially his perfect rule and reign in perfect relationship with you. That's, that's, that's an intense sentence. And we're going to pick into that a little bit, But, but here's the ultimate place we're going today. Here's where everything today lands on. Because the kingdom of God is what you were made for. The kingdom of God is for you. Like you're, you it's, it's for you. It's a good for you. It's what God has for you, his kingdom. So what is it? Well, first and foremost, the kingdom of God is the primary message of Jesus in his teaching and his earthly ministry. That's, we need to start there. Mark 1:14 says, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The problem here is that even though the kingdom of God is the primary subject of Jesus' teaching, his teaching about it is honestly, it's just kind of hard to wrap your head around. It's, it's, it's hard to really get at specifically what Jesus is saying. I'm going to give you like a shotgun of verses right now to explain what I'm talking about. So this is just some of the stuff Jesus said about the kingdom during his life and his ministry and during the time of the early church. Jesus tells the Pharisee Nicodemus he can't see the kingdom of God unless God changes him. John 3.3, Jesus replied, truly I tell you unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus told uh, other religious leaders in a different time that the kingdom wasn't obvious, that it was already among them. Luke 17, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming from something observable. No one will say, see here or there, there it is. For you see, the kingdom of God is already in your midst. Jesus told the Roman governor Pilate that the kingdom was not even of this world. John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Jesus told his own followers that the kingdom was like a treasure worth any cost to have, Matthew 13, 44 through 46. This is actually a text we're gonna come back to today. So hold this one in your back pocket. The kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he finds one, that's priceless. He went and sold everything he had and bought it. The Apostle Paul later told the Roman church, the kingdom of God is a matter of the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy and all of these in the Holy Spirit. So why am I dumping a bunch of texts on you guys without spending any time explaining them? The main reason is this, guys. Understanding the kingdom of God is vitally important to living your Christian life, to living out your faith. Here and now, you were made for kingdom of life, for kingdom life. The kingdom of God is for you, beloved. But it's hard, it's a hard concept to get. It's hard to fully understand it. When you, when you read the scriptural teaching about the kingdom, it just seems squishy. And the reason is simple, but also frustrating. At the end of the day, beloved, the kingdom of God has to be experienced, in order to be fully understood. It just has to. Until you experience the authoritative reign of God in relationship with you as a redeemed person within the redeemed space of God's creation, until you fully experience that, you won't fully understand it. So instead, when the scripture teaches on it, it speaks in metaphors and similes and examples. It doesn't speak directly. Imagine, it's like this, imagine if you were given the task of explaining the color red to someone who had been born blind. Imagine what that experience would be like, right? Sitting with someone who's never seen in their entire life and your job is to tell them what red is like. What sort of things would you tell them? You might say, well, red is the warmth you feel on a summer day when when the sun rises. Red is that bang you feel when fireworks go off on 4th of July. Red is that heat and that crackle from from a campfire on a fall night. Red is that shot of spice when you bite into a pepper. Now, here's the thing. Those are all really good analogies for red, right? You're like, yeah, I I, I get that. So you explain all that, and the person's like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, loud, bright, spicy, yeah, I get it. Is that person picturing red in their mind? (laughs) No. No, but imagine in the same scenario, maybe a few months later, there's some experimental surgery and they replace that person's eyeballs with Terminator eyes. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) And you get to be in the hospital room when they take the dramatically unwrap the bandages. You know what I'm talking about? And it just so happens, because I'm making up the story, that you're on like the top story of the hospital and it's right at sunset and there's this huge bay window and so there's this gorgeous like palette of purples and oranges and reds shining through the window right when they take off the bandages and your friend sees this brilliant, perfect sunset. In that moment, they're gonna know exactly what all those metaphors meant, Right? In the moment when red goes in their robot eyes and their brain processes it, all of a sudden the metaphor is, oh, that's what you meant. I see it now. Oh, it's warm, it's loud, it's bright. Yes, this is what red is, right? You can't know what red is until you experience it. So if you can't experience it, all you can do is give similes, metaphors. Red is like this, red is like this, red is like this. It is the same with the kingdom of God, beloved. Until you experience it, you can't know what it is. You just can't. So the Bible gives us similes and metaphors and examples to help us get there so that when you experience it, your mind, your soul, your person lights up and goes, ah, yes, this is what it is. This is what I, this is what Jesus was talking about, right? Right? So when you look throughout Scripture, the kind of things used to describe the kingdom, I mean, it uses a lot of language to describe the kingdom. The Scripture talks about the kingdom of God and calls it things like a garden, an ethnicity, a nation, a family, a marriage, a church, kingdom. All these different metaphors pointing to the same idea, the authoritative rule of God in relationship with his redeemed people in his redeemed creation, the thing God is moving towards, the the end goal of this whole thing, right? God in in perfect, authoritative relationship with his people in his redeemed creation. It's what the whole thing is aiming at. And by the way, once again, it's what you were made for. It's what you're heading toward. It's for you, beloved. So it's really important, right? Right? We can't can't skip around this piece. Kingdom of God is how the Bible talks about God's ultimate design for this reality. And by the way, that state of being, that kingdom life, this is what Jesus won with his work on the cross. His crucifixion was his inauguration as king, beloved. His tomb was his coronation throne. It's so wonderful. It's what you and I were made for. But again, even this idea, right, like this beautiful kind of theological language, like Jesus' victory on the cross, his victory with his resurrection, is also, if we're honest, kind of confusing because we go, yeah, that's beautiful, that's awesome, that's the kind of thing I can sing in church on Easter, but we also realize it's not actually fully realized yet, right? Right? Jesus won his kingdom on that day on the cross. He secured it by the power of the spirit when he rose from the dead. But we still live in a sinful, broken world. The kingdom will not be fully realized until Christ returns and judges and restores all things. So it leaves us in this weird middle ground, right? This is what we were made for. This is what we're called to. This is what all of this is moving toward. It's here, yes, like Christ's work is accomplished, it's secure. You are part of the kingdom, but it's also a kingdom to come. That's why it's so vitally important for you as the church today to not just understand the kingdom of God, but to live in the kingdom of God, blood. It's what you were called unto. So, whoo, Romans 8. <laughs> Took me a minute to get there, sorry. <laughs> Romans 8, we're going to start in verse 12 says this, So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time were not worth comparing With the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope who hopes for what he sees. Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, church. Jesus, I just want to ask really quick, Lord, that that you would just give us Calm, quiet, open, honest hearts for the next few minutes. Lord, we we live this life so frantic, so busy, so full of distractions around us, distractions within us. Lord, it is so easy to miss the big picture of what you are doing in this cosmos because of the busyness of our schedules and our lives and our own hearts. God, I pray for the next few minutes that you would just give us, each, each one of us in this room, the peace of your spirit, the peace that is beyond our understanding that allows us to be calm and quiet and patient and sit with you and hear from you. Lord, encourage us today, challenge us today, remind us today of your goodness for us, your good plan for us. Lord, let us all, every one of us, leave this space today having heard from you what our hearts actually need. We love you, Jesus. and pray these things in your name. Amen. So, For many of us, and I'm going to say many of us because this is my own insecurity coming out, for me, uh, for me, Romans is a really intimidating book to read and study, much less preach. I think there's a reason for that. Romans is one of the hardest books of the Bible to read. And and that's really because it's one unified progression of thought from beginning to end. Romans is meant to be taken in one sitting, which if you're like me, that's just like, "Mm, for real? (laughs) Uh, Dang. It's, it's this, it's, I mean, in Romans, we get one of the deepest and clearest expositions of biblical doctrine and gospel theology in the whole of the Bible. It is a beast of a book, right? But I will just say this before we jump into it. You need not be disturbed by Romans. It was written by the same Holy Spirit who inspired and preserved the rest of the book. And by his power, you and me in this space, we can engage it and we can hear the gospel from him, amen? Amen. The Apostle Paul wrote Romans a little later in his ministry life, near the end probably of what's recorded in the book of Acts. And it essentially goes down like this. He wanted to move his base of ministry from the church in Antioch to the church in Rome so that he could expand his missionary efforts to the larger Roman Empire, right? But by this point in his ministry, Paul was a controversial figure. He was controversial amongst the Jewish population. He was controversial amongst the Roman population. And he was even controversial amongst the Christian population. And he's never actually been to the church at Rome. So when he wants to move his base there, he's not sure if they'll actually support him the way Antioch does. So he writes this letter explaining his entire teaching. Here's my doctrine, here's the gospel as I preach it, and I want to send it to you in as, in as clear and complete a form as possible so this church gets a good view of who Paul is, what his ministry looks like, so that hopefully they'll support him in his ministry to go continue preaching the gospel and planting churches around the Roman world. He sends it by hand of a trusted deaconess. Uh, and, it, and, it, and by the way, it works, because about seven or so years after he sends this letter, he ends up being one of the elders in uh, the church at Rome where he served until his death, as far as we know. But that actually helps us. It helps us in engaging Romans. Romans is, at the end of the day, just Paul trying to go, how do I take everything I teach and compress it into 15 chapters? How do I get it all out there as completely and as fully and as clearly as I can? And so we hear, essentially, a gospel, a doctrinally-minded gospel proclamation from beginning to end of Romans. That's how it goes. Chapters 1 through 3 starts with God's authority, how that's distorted by sin. He talks about why salvation is necessary. 3 and 4, he moves into God's means of salvation through the whole of Scripture, talking about God's word, talking about faith in God's word. Chapters 5 through 8, he talks about the effects of salvation, how it affects the church, how it affects the world, what does it actually look like uh, in, in reality. 9 through 11, he describes the scope of salvation, how it affect all kinds of people. And he gets into 12 through 15, he transitions and talks about how salvation affects our life, how Christian morality, what that looks like in the church. So our text in Romans 8 puts us square in the middle of Paul's description of the effects of salvation. He closes out this section by talking about how the new kingdom reality the new kingdom reality will look for those who are in Christ. There's so much more in this text than we have time to even like touch. Today, so for our purposes, I'm going to zone into three ideas, and essentially it's this. I think in our text, as much as the kingdom of God is abstracts and metaphors for us, as, as, as we're kind of still moving toward Christ's return, I think our text today gives us three concrete, trustworthy things that help us as believers engage kingdom life. So I want to focus in on these three ideas about the kingdom. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed this as we read through it, Paul doesn't actually use the term kingdom of God in our text. His preferred metaphor in this context is the idea of family of God, and he talks about adoption, but but we're, we're talking about the same thing, right? God's ultimate design for his reality, his authoritative reign and rule and relationship with his redeemed people in his redeemed creation, right? That's what we're talking about. But the metaphor on hand here is family, but it's still Same thing, kingdom. So so what we're going to talk about is this. We're going to talk about the idea that the kingdom of God is upside down, that it inverts the expectations of a sinful, broken world. We're going to talk about the idea that the kingdom of God is already, but not yet, that it exists in, in this moment in time, in this weird limbo. And we're going to talk about how the kingdom of God for believers today is primarily experienced through relationship with the Holy Spirit. Those three pieces. So let's kind of work back through this text and see how we see each of those ideas. The kingdom of God is upside down. It inverts our expectations in this sinful and broken world. Verse At the very beginning. So then, brothers and sisters, we're not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because if we live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led in God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of Adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, then we may also be glorified with him. What an absolutely amazing chunk of text, amen? Here we're reminded that even though our sinful selves desire the flesh, Paul's word for kind of the cursed reality within which we live. Jesus has made a way not only for us to receive, to receive kind of a, the death away our, like, our from our sin, but instead to become children of God, right? Christ has made a way not only to forgive our sins, not only to take on the death our sin earned, but to give us his inheritance, to give us his righteousness. The text says that we become children of God. And by the way, the text there specifically uses the term sons of God. This is not Paul being a chauvinist, right? This is actually a really important theological piece because in that, in that time, in that day, the boys were the ones that got the inheritance. And so Paul goes out of his way to say, you are sons of God because you are heirs alongside Christ, co-heirs with Christ, of the gift of God, the estate of God set aside for you. Come on, can we sit in that for a moment? The estate of God, what is the estate of God the Father? Reality, everything. He is the, the king of everything, the creator and sustainer of existence. Your name is put on his estate alongside his son. Come on, church. That's insanity. Co-heirs with Christ. I mean, it it would be beyond gracious. If we sit in the reality of the difference between the holiness of God and the rebellious sinfulness of humanity, it would be beyond gracious for God to step in and forgive our sins, to not give us the punishment our sin deserves, to not bring about the wrath that sin justly brings about. That in and of itself, will be a grace beyond measure. But to take the extra step and grant us his righteousness, include us in his family, write our name in his estate to receive an inheritance alongside Jesus Christ? Come on, church. That's insanity. Last week, Jim referenced Mark 10.45. It's one of my favorite texts in Scripture where Jesus talks about how upside down the kingdom of God is. Because the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Can we just like, I I feel like this is a piece where we have just this embarrassment of wealth and, and we miss what we're actually talking about because it's become so normative to us, so comfortable for us. Can we sit in this for a moment? how much the kingdom of God inverts the expectations of reality. In that same text in Mark 10, Jesus says, you, you know the rulers of this world, they lord their authority over their subjects. It will not be like that amongst you. No, 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 no. If, if you want to be the greatest, you must be the least. If you want to be first, you must be last. You must be a slave. You must be a servant. The kingdom of God is upside down. The ones with the greatest authority give it away and serve and love and give to others. That's not how the world works, Right? Can we sit for a moment in the reality of the king of the universe stooping down to love and serve you and I? Again, right? we, we sing, we, we study, we pray about the love of God, how much God loves you, how much God is with you. And by the way, that's true and we should revel in those things. But I think sometimes we do that so often that, that we can lose the grandness of that statement. That God would, sacrifice himself for you, that God would suffer? And listen, I'm not belittling you, but can we be sober for a moment about our own lives, our own hearts, our own rebelliousness, and consider the king of reality giving himself for us? Imagine, if you will, that you had a little, a little uh, microscope slide of some pond water, and you put that under the microscope. Does anyone remember doing this in like middle school science class, Right? And you see the little bacteria floating around, and you're like, ah, yes, the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, like (laughs) that whole piece, you know what I'm talking about? Can you imagine, can you imagine a context where you would be looking at that little slide under the microscope and then think, that amoeba is great. I stink and love that. Oh, my gosh, that amoeba is about to get eaten. And then you just die to save that amoeba? Just like jump in front of like, I don't know, whatever like, fluid the teacher was going to put on the slide. Like, can you imagine a context where you would give your, give your life and die for the sake of an amoeba that you liked better than the other amoebas? No. No, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that because here's the thing. Even though that amoeba might be cool for the 15 minutes you're sitting there messing with the slide during science class, ultimately you don't care about that amoeba. Sorry. <laughs> you don't. You don't, you don't care about it because it's nothing compared to you. To even put it in the same category as you, I mean, yeah, it's a living creature. Yeah, it's got a mitochondria, in the powerhouse of the cell. But like, it's not anything of value compared to you as a human being. You wouldn't sacrifice yourself for it. You're not going to give any thought today to when you eat lunch and how your stomach acid is going to dissolve a whole bunch of bacteria and kill a whole bunch of little cells with mitochondria that you eat. You're not going to care about that because they're nothing to you. As the God of the universe died for you, can we sit in that for a moment? How upside down, how inverted is this kingdom? The God of the universe would would serve you, give himself for you, suffer for you, and then elevate you to give you his inheritance the kingdom we're talking about kingdom of god is already but it's not yet starting in verse 18 i consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for god's sons to be revealed for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of god's children for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope, we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? No, we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. This one's interesting to me, but it's also very important when we consider what the Christian life looks like in this world. In verse 15 and 16, in the first chunk of the text, it says the Holy Spirit himself testifies that we are adopted into the family of God, that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. It has happened. Jesus' accomplished work on the cross has secured and inaugurated this reality. But verse 23 talks about how through the Spirit, we eagerly await our adoption. It has happened, but it hasn't happened yet. There is this already, but not yet to the kingdom of God. Jesus's work on the cross was sufficient. That's why we take communion every time we gather. The work of Jesus was sufficient and we celebrate it and we trust it. Sin, death, Satan, the curse. These were defeated by Christ's accomplished work on the cross in his triumphant resurrection from the dead, but our world still sits in the effects of the curse. We still have bodies that age. We still experience death and sickness and injustice. Our souls have already been perfectly resurrected, but our flesh remains and will remain until Jesus returns and restores all things. to judge, the righteous and the wicked in this world. Thus, you and I are living right now, as those who are in Christ, in this unique expression of the kingdom of God, that will never exist again. Your salvation is secure. Your place in the kingdom is guaranteed. The Holy Spirit himself testifies that you are adopted. You're in the kingdom. You're in the family. You're part of this amazing reality. But it won't be fully realized until Jesus comes back, which is why we eagerly await the day. And by the way, we eagerly await it alongside all of reality, did you catch that in the text? The cosmos itself is waiting for Christ's return to restore all things. Quason stars and asteroids, stinking bacteria all the way up, all the way down. Reality is waiting for Jesus to come back and fix everything. And we wait alongside, hyped, excited, anticipating, patient, why? It's such a weird thing about the kingdom of God. Why does why it like that? Why doesn't Jesus get it all done in one go? Why come down and do the work and then be like, okay, work's done. Now pause mode for however many thousand years. Why? Second Peter 3 gives us the answer to that, I think, in the clearest way possible. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but rather is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Jesus allows his delay in this state because he is patient and gracious and wants more people to receive salvation, period. The God of the universe allows this state, this already but not yet, because he wants his heaven full. There's a room at the table of the wedding feast of the lamb, and he wants every single chair filled, so go find guests, right? It's the parable of the wedding feast. Go. I don't care where you have to go. Go into the alleys. Go into the streets. Go into the highways. Find people to fill my house. Mm. We're already, but not yet, because the mission of God is not accomplished yet. The work is accomplished. Jesus already died. He already rose. He already reigns victoriously. But there are those who Christ is calling unto himself. Mm. I think, by the way, this, and, and Paul says this explicitly, th- this whole thing puts the suffering of this world in this beautiful and perfectly cosmic context. Paul actually hits this in the text, right? Like, I, I, I consider my present sufferings as nothing in comparison to the weight of glory, the glory to come, right? Because that's, that's the piece of it. Oftentimes when we're asking God, why do you delay? Why would you do it this way? Why would you save me and then leave me in this broken, sinful world? What we're really saying is, it's terrible down here. It's really bad. Terrible stuff happens to me and people I love. Why are you leaving this and allowing it? Why are you delaying? Why did this have to happen to me or happen to someone I love? Paul puts that suffering, sickness, injustice wrong. He puts it in a cosmic context. It says, because eternity is a really stinking long time. That's why. Because forever is a really big amount of time. And God wants his heaven full. And God has invited you to join in the work of seeking and saving the lost. He's invited you to live in his kingdom here now where it's already but it's not yet, to join him in proclaiming the goodness of salvation to those who desperately need it. He's invited you to participate in the work, which which I think lands us kind of perfectly at this last last piece. The kingdom of God here and now is primarily experience of the Holy Spirit. Let me reread this last part. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray as we should. For the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What a great way to end our text today. Now, here's the thing. The whole of this text, all of the sections are drenched in this language of the Holy Spirit in his active work in our life as believers. But I think this piece sums it up really nicely. Beloved, the Holy Spirit keeps our sinful fleshly selves in this broken already, but not yet upside down world connected to the holy and righteous God while we await his return. The Holy Spirit is so involved in your life here and now that he goes so far as to fix your bad prayers. Is that the most comforting text you've ever heard in your entire life? Those of you who have kids, you heard your kids ask you for something that, if they, that is just absolutely ludicrous and they have no way of knowing how ludicrous it is. Like having a temper tantrum because you won't let your kid continue to eat dog poop or something like that. Why won't you love me? And you're just going, you have no clue what you're saying right now. This is insanity. But you love your kid and so you like moving through it. Like, you know, right? Like, you've got a stack of those prayers lined up with God. Revelation does say that the prayers of the saints are stored up in the incense burner and God gets to smell them. You know you've put some stinkers in there. And don't, don't, don't lie, you know you have. How comforting is it to know that the Holy Spirit comes behind you and spell checks? And it's just like, hey, God, I know he told you this, but here's what he meant. <laughs> oh, that is so comforting to me when I think about the journey I've been on in faith, right? But, but I think that's this perfect picture of exactly what we're talking about. The Holy Spirit is your primary, your primary in this life, here and now, connection and experience of the kingdom of God. Now, for some of you, you hear me say that and you're like, ooh, this little... Well, a little charismatic here. Uh, we've got the word of God, sir. Yeah, you know, you know who interprets the word of God for you? The Holy Spirit. Come on. You know who wrote the word of God for you and preserved it to get it into your hands right now? This is the Holy Spirit. Your, your time in the word, your connection to God through the word is a ministry of the Holy Spirit on your behalf because he loves you and wants to disciple you. He's present in your life. This is your connection to the kingdom here and now. Someday, someday... You'll get to hang out with Jesus in the flesh. You'll get to walk around and go on hikes and share meals and talk shop about life. And you won't even notice the sunrise or the sunset because the glory of God will light the earth. But here and now, we're awaiting Jesus' return and we've got the sun. It's up there going up and down. We have to turn on our lights at night. But what you do have is the Holy Spirit. By the way, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that validated his messiahship, the same spirit that guided him through his ministry and has guided the church for 2,000 years, that spirit, the one who wrote and preserved and interprets this word for you, that God lives and dwells within you and intercedes on your behalf to spell check your bad prayers. Come on, church. That's wonderful. It's wonderful. And it's the primary way we experience the kingdom here and now. The Scripture says that the spirit is the deposit guaranteeing our salvation when we get discouraged in this world, when we're not as godly as Paul and we're not able to consider, like to not compare our sufferings and this light and momentary affliction of the weight of glory, we actually go, no, this suffering present seems terrible and we're we're just not able to get there. Beloved, the Holy Spirit in that moment is the deposit guaranteeing your salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes you through that time, who guides you. It says here, once he's got you, he's got you. The will God has for you, drawing you into his kingdom, his ultimate, his eternal will for you, that's gonna happen. He's gonna get you there. Spirit preserves you, keeps you in your doubt and your hurt and your pain and your suffering. Spirit of God connects us to the kingdom here and now. Don't miss that, church. It's so easy in our faith context because we see, we see people do weird stuff or cuckoo stuff or abuse the name of the Holy Spirit and the way they practice their faith. It's so easy for us to just cast him aside. But beloved, he is God and he loves you and he is your present daily connection to the kingdom of God. Don't miss him. Don't snuff his voice in your life. Seek him out. Relate to him, experience him. It's how you walk in the kingdom. All this comes together, this upside-down kingdom, this insane, insane story of a king who gives him, of a God who gives himself for his creation, of a kingdom that's already secured but hasn't come together yet, that's experienced through this spirit of God who lives and dwells with you, in you, not in temples made by man, but in your very heart. This whole thing, I think, comes together in Jesus' words in Matthew 13. And if you want to come up here, I told you we're going to come back to this one. (laughs) Jesus, in one of his metaphors for the kingdom in Matthew 13, in the Bay of Parables, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied, and then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he finds the priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Beloved, Jesus is telling us here, the kingdom of God is a treasure. It's worth having. Of course, it's worth having. Beloved, you were made for the kingdom. Kingdom life is what God designed you for. Kingdom of God is for you, beloved. Of course, it's a treasure. Of course, it's worth having. It's worth any price to have because it's what you were designed for. Any other life outside of that will not fulfill your purpose, will not fulfill your soul. It won't. You're seeking to function outside your design. Outside your design, you can find pleasures, sure. You can find things that feel good. You can eat, drink, and be merry. Of course you can. But that won't fulfill the heart. Your heart will not be satisfied or content with that because you were made for more than that. You were made for the kingdom. It's worth it. It's worth seeking. It's worth chasing. It's worth paying any price to have. It's a treasure, beloved. It's a treasure. And it's a treasure that Jesus hands you. He hands it to you. says, I, I bought it. I paid for it. It's yours. Come. Be a co-heir alongside me. Receive the kingdom you were made for. What a gift, beloved. I'm going to invite Emma to sing a song over us. And I'd encourage you to take these few moments as she sings and, and respond the way your heart needs to, right? Like if you need to sit, if you need to stand up and just sing the song and be into it, that's awesome. It's a great song. If you need to sit and pray for a few minutes, I'd encourage you to do that. But I'd love to give you three thoughts kind of to connect to these three ideas about the kingdom as you pray. First one is this. The upside down nature of the kingdom really should lead you to praise. Really should. You sit and consider how much God loves you. You sit and consider that amoeba in that tray and what you would be willing to do for it versus what God is willing to do for you. It should lead you to gratitude, to praise, to joy. If you consider the already but the not yet of the kingdom, it should lead you to mission. It should lead you to evangelism, to join in the work. He's not, he's not delaying because he just enjoys watching the world grind on. He's patient, not wanting any to perish. And beloved, beloved, hear this. The spirit of God is out seeking and saving the lost. He's accomplishing the work of his church. You want to be close to Christ? You want to be close to the Spirit? You want to live in relationship with the Spirit of God? Go where he is. Do what he does. Where he is and what he's doing is seeking and saving the lost. Join him in that work. Consider that. Consider what that looks like, how the reality of the kingdom does or doesn't draw you to mission. And lastly, this idea, church, I want to invite you to consider this. The spirit driven nature of the kingdom should lead us to intimacy, vulnerability, and relationship. You do not worship a God who dwells in a temple made by human hands. God Himself dwells in your midst, in you, and with you. He knows you intimately. As He's proofreading your prayers for you, He knows you. That should draw us to intimacy to vulnerability, to invite, invite the spirit to know us, open ourselves to him and seek to know him as he knows us. Loved, the kingdom of God is for you. It's a treasure and it's what you were made for and it is right in front of you. Seek it, take it, be a part of it. Take these next few minutes to pray. Consider what the Spirit might be telling you today. If you need to pray with one of our pastors, we're around the room. We'd love to sit with you. Help work through what God's telling you today. But I encourage you guys, take this minute, be sung over, or join us in singing. Respond to the Lord, and we'll end our time with communion.